Today I want to talk to you about perspective. Perspective is not how you see things. Perspective is your attitude towards things. Many of you know Manny Pacquiao. You raise your hand if you know Manny Pacquiao. All right. So very popular guy. And Manny Pacquiao was born dirt poor, as in really poor. He said that he used to sleep in cardboard boxes because there were not enough houses in their home when while he was growing up. He took his chance in the city as a gardener before he went full-time boxing. And his professional debut took place when he was 16. It earned him $20. Let's put this in perspective. $20 is what you pay for your nails to be done. $20 is how what you pay for your box of pizza. This is the first that Manny Pacquiao won, $20. After 2021, when he retired, his net worth is $375 million with eight division world championship. Do you believe that? So when he was asked what was his ultimate motivation for coming out of poverty, he said, and I quote, I started boxing because of poverty, because of poverty, and we need something to eat, unquote. Perspective. Perspective is your attitude towards things. See, Manny Pacquiao could have been any other Joe who grew up in poverty just like many of us here. See, many of us here were probably given an opportunity. Some, with blood, sweat, and tears, took every opportunity to strive this far. How many can relate to that? Yes? Yes? This is a very common thing for Filipinos and for Asians, I would say, in general. But the idea is that w the, the thing that changes us is perspective. See, in the world of pandemic, the difference between thriving and merely surviving hinges on perspective. Let me explain that. Perspective is what motivates us to get up in the morning even when we don't feel like doing it. Perspective is what, is what makes you pursue even when your experience comes to plateau or you experience opposition, experience failure, perspective is your attitude towards things. See, when the Israelites came out of Egypt, they witnessed the, the signs and wonders of God, all the things that God did and how God fought over the gods of Egypt. They had a change of mind. They saw that God is powerful. But when they entered the promised land, Instead of seeing a bigger God, they saw giants instead. What changed? Perspective. So what, they, what did they do? They changed their minds. They abandoned the project. They decided to go back to Egypt. They decided to become slaves again rather than pursue their dream, take their inheritance, enter the promised land. Fast forward 40 years, their children, everybody died, their children entered the promised land easy. They crossed the Jordan River. What changed? perspective they saw something their parents did not their reality did not change God did not change their promise did not change nothing changed except their attitude towards the crisis change the difference between thriving and merely surviving hinges on perspective are you still with me now how many of you feel that God's want you to thrive and survive sorry how many of you can say that God wants you to thrive rather than just survive? 
Show of hands? Yes. We all want to thrive. How many of you just want to survive? <laughs> all right. Well, at the end of the sermon, I, I, I plan to really show you that the plan of God is for us to thrive and not just to survive. See, the difference between thriving and merely surviving hinges on perspective. And the story of Joshua teaches us about perspective, how Israel thrived and how they changed their perspective. Let me read from Joshua chapter 5, verse 1. This is what it says. As soon as the kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan to the west and all the kings of the Canaanites who were by the sea heard that the Lord has dried up the waters of Jordan for the people of Israel until they had crossed over, their hearts melted and there was no longer any spirit in them because of the people of Israel. The Canaanites who were fierce warriors saw what God did by stopping the flow of the waters of Jordan and their hearts melted. Perspective. This verse tells us that they had a change of mind about Yahweh, the God of Israelites. Their hearts melted. And for that reason, they lost all their reason to fight and win. And at this point, the Canaanites were merely surviving, not thriving anymore. They realized that their God Baal is less powerful than God Yahweh. That Baal is not able to protect their territory. That the waters of Jordan was breached. Baal couldn't do anything about it. What changed? Perspective. Let's continue verse 2 through 5. It says, At that time the Lord said to Joshua, Make flint knives and circumcise the sons of Israel a second time. So Joshua made flint knives and circumcised the sons of Israel at Gibeat Ha'arloth. And this is the reason why Joshua circumcised them. All the males of the people who came out of Egypt, all the men of war had died in the wilderness on the way after they had come out of Egypt. Though all the people who came out had been circumcised, yet all the people who were born on the way in the wilderness after they had come out of Egypt had not been circumcised. It's a long explanation why the second generation, their children, were not circumcised. Because there's so many struggles that happened for 40 years that they forgot to circumcise the children. Circumcision is not foreign to us, especially Asians. Circumcision is a way of life for us. And there's a high percentage that you have been circumcised. If you're a male, you're Asian, it's likely that you are circumcised. If you're a mother, a sister, you know a friend, uh, a male friend, most likely you have heard about circumcision. But what is circumcision? What does it mean for the people of Israel to be circumcised? See, circumcision for Israel is about vulnerability. They had to be vulnerable before God. That's circumcision. Vulnerability is God's way to refine their faith. The covenant of God with Abraham has something to do with circumcision. To prove that they are Abraham's children, all the Israelites must be circumcised. That's their sort of birth certificate that they carry around their body, circumcision. To prove that a Jew is a Jew, circumcision. That's for the Israelites. And God, <laughs> it's, very, it's very funny here because the moment they crossed the river, they were lying camp uh, at the plains of Jericho with no walls, and God said, circumcise all the men. And you know what will happen here? And, and this is funny, because the moment Joshua circumcised the people of Israel, they were put in a very vulnerable situation. Why? Because it takes at least one week or six days to heal circumcision. And if all the men of war 
were circumcised at the same time and the enemy attacks, then they will lose vulnerability. See, vulnerability is God's way to refine our faith. I think in the same way, this pandemic has made us vulnerable. We have all felt it. The last couple of weeks, many of us has contracted this, this uh, COVID. We have undergone this, this crisis. But for the people of Israel, circumcision was the proof of their inheritance. Without the circumcision, they cannot take the land. That's what it means. That's why at the very beginning of their journey, entering the promised land, God has to command Joshua to circumcise all the men. What this means is that without the circumcision, they have no claim of the land, nothing. That means their claim to the land is not legit. Circumcision was their proof that it was theirs to begin with. In fact, God specifically commanded in Genesis chapter 17, verse 14, that Abraham must circumcise all the Israelite men. That means if any Israelite man who does not want to be circumcised, he will be cut off from their inheritance, regardless whether they are born Jew or not, or born Israelite or not. Circumcision is the badge, the proof of their inheritance. But think about this very carefully. Again, Israel just crossed the Jordan River. They built no walls. They were in the open in the plains of Jericho. And, and the funny thing is that Jericho, the first city, the fortified city, is just 12 miles away from where they camped at Gilgal. Now, put things in perspective. From here, all the way to Sawgrass Mills is about 10.5 miles. It's very near. From here, all the way to the Hard Rock Cafe in Seminole is 12 miles. That's how near the enemy was. And yet, and yet the Israelites took their chance to circumcise themselves because they know that the only way they can claim the land is for them to have the proof, and the proof is circumcision. That means God has placed them in a very vulnerable position where they can do nothing but trust God. And here's the insight. When God is about to do something important and wants to bless you, he puts you in a very vulnerable position, not just to test your faith, but to refine your faith. Vulnerability is God's way of refining our faith. You know, th th this is what the jewelers do when they try to form gold rings, gold. Uh, they, they put fire on the gold. They try to take away the impurities of the gold. Vulnerability is God's way to refine our faith. Think about Abraham for 25 years. He waited for Isaac for 25 years. Think about Moses for 40 years. He was a shepherd in the mountain doing nothing, but all, the, all along, God was refining his faith. Think about Joseph in prison before he became the second advisor to Pharaoh. Or think about Jacob while he was languishing uh, as a shepherd boy to his uncle Laban for 40 years. This is God's way. Vulnerability is God's way to refine our faith because crisis always comes before congratulations. Are you listening? Now, what this means is that personally, if you are undergoing some struggle, that means you're in a vulnerable position, which also leads me to think and to say that God is about to do something great in your life. As a church, we have experienced this pandemic, and I cannot think of anything 
but that God is about to do something great for our church. Because vulnerability is God's way to refine our faith. See, the Israelites, especially Joshua, knew that if they had to go, to go through the circumcision, they will be put in a very vulnerable position. And it takes a lot of courage. It takes a lot of courage to do this. It takes a lot of courage to do things that do not make sense. It's what we call faith. There's a fine line between crazy and faith. Are you with me? What is crazy? Crazy is doing something that doesn't make sense just because you want to do it. Like base jumping. Who in the right mind would want to put a tie around his feet and jump from a well-structured bridge for fun? I'm sorry if some of you have done that. (laughs) But I, I don't get it. Or probably this one I saw from YouTube. Uh, who would, in the right mind, go inside a zoo full of lions unarmed just because it's fun? It doesn't make sense. But you see, faith is different. Faith is what Meshach, Shadrach, and Abednego did. When, when the king said, you cannot, you have to bow down to the idol, and they said, no, we're not going to bow down to the idol, they were put in the furnace. That's faith. That's crazy, but that's faith. This is what Daniel did when the king ordered that all you have to do is to pray. All, all prayers must be directed to the king. And Daniel said no, and he was thrown to the lion's den. He refused, but that's faith. You may call it crazy, but it's faith. See, the difference between crazy and faith is God. When you do something that, is not, that doesn't make sense, but you do it because of God, it's called faith. Let me continue verse 8 through 12. When the circumcising of the whole nation was finished, they remained in their places in the camp until they were all healed. And the Lord said to Joshua, Today I have rolled away the reproach of Egypt from you. You can make this your verse. And so the name of the place is called Gilgal to this day. While the people of Israel were encamped at Gilgal, they kept the Passover on the 14th day of the month, in the evening on the plains of Jericho. And the day after the Passover, on that very day, they ate the produce of the land, unleavened cakes, and parched grain. And the manna, which is the bread coming from heaven, ceased the day after they ate the produce of the land. And there was no longer manna for the people of Israel, but they ate of the fruit of the land of Canaan that year. Now, this is very interesting on on two things. Number one, remember that they are about 12 miles away from the enemy. Um, again, <laughs> 12 miles near from where they were at Gilgal. Uh, two things that they did. They celebrated Passover and they're circumcised. I mean, I mean, circumcision, we already know it's vulnerability. But what about Passover and they ate the unleavened uh, cakes and parched grain? That means they will have to harvest. They will have to separate the straw from the grains. They will have to cook to make, to make cakes. And they will have to roast animals to eat Passover. Are you still with me? Now imagine this. All the families in Israel, the whole nation, about at this point 4.5 million people roasting at the same time and cooking cakes. The enemy would smell from a distance and they would say, this is crazy. The people of Israel are celebrating even before they've taken the land. It's now time to attack. This is crazy, but the, they have the audacity to do this because they believe 
that God has been giving them the land that is theirs for the taking. See, they understood that it was their inheritance in the first place. The only reason why the people of Israel will have that kind of faith in God is because they believe that it was for them. And so with all the vulnerability, with no walls in plain sight, they were celebrating Passover, they were eating. And this is very interesting. Now, I want you to pay close attention to verse 9. And the Lord said to Joshua, Today I have rolled away the reproach of Egypt from you. What, what could this be? What does this mean? See, this verse is pregnant with meaning. If the circumcision was the proof that they were Abraham's children, that means officially they were no longer slaves of Egypt. See, the moment you have the proof of your inheritance, that means you're the owner now. The Israelites now are the owner of Canaan. Once they were circumcised, that's what it means. They were no longer slaves. And the circumcision is God's way of rolling away the shame and the claim of Egypt to the Israelites. God has rolled away the reproach of Egypt. See, in the same way, when we read the Bible, we talk about our sin. The Bible says that the sin was our former master. You read the epistles, you read that way. And the Bible also said that when we repent of our sins, we were forgiven. The Bible said that our guilt has been dealt with on the cross. Because there was an actual payment for our sins. Christ died for real. It's true. It's called forgiveness. So we know that once you were forgiven, we're not guilty anymore. But why is it that sometimes when we think back on our past, we still feel the shame? See, the guilt and the shame are two different things. Guilt is the feeling based on an actual condition of doing something wrong because you did something wrong. You stole a cookie. That's guilt. What you felt is real because it's based on an actual thing. You stole a cookie. But shame is different. Shame is the lingering feeling even when the guilt has already been dealt with. Even when your mom says, I forgive you for stealing a cookie, you still feel ashamed. Why? It's still there because it's, it's remind, it reminds you of what you did. See, guilt and shame are two different things. Shame is the temporary fig leaves that Adam and Eve created to hide their nakedness. You remember that? Shame is the mark that God gave to Cain so that he will not be murdered by anyone. But it also bears the shame because everything, every time he looks at it, it reminds him of murdering his brother. See, shame is what keeps us at night when our memories try to visit us. Shame is the feeling of our nakedness and vulnerability, even though we know for a fact that God has already forgiven us. So when Joshua circumcised Israel, God is saying, today I have rolled away the shame of your slavery, the shame of your past, the shame of whatever you still carry around. Shame is the unnecessary burden that we carry. We are guilty we're forgiven, there should be no more shame. But why do we still feel it? Because we still remember the past. And it's an unnecessary burden. So let me unburden you. Colossians chapter 2, 11 to 14. This is what Paul said. He said, in him, you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands. Remember Joshua? He circumcised the people of Israel. See, Christians, we have also been circumcised spiritually. And how did he 
did uh, Jesus do that? It says, by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses, by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with his legal demands, he set aside, nailing it to the cross. The people of Israel were circumcised at Gilgal. We, our guilt, were nailed to the cross when Jesus Christ was nailed to the cross. That means on the cross, our sins are forgiven. On the cross, we were circumcised in Jesus. Are you still with me? Now, the physical circumcision marks the event when God rolled away the reproach of Egypt for Israel, the claim of Egypt, the shame of Egypt. Our spiritual circumcision happened the moment Jesus canceled the record of our debt. Jesus canceled on the cross the record of our guilt. He nailed it on the cross. That means your past was nailed on the cross. Your guilt was nailed on the cross. That's why shame and guilt have no legal basis anymore on you if you're forgiven. See, when you start believing that you have been forgiven and that your sins have been dealt with, and that God has rolled away the reproach of sin in your life, it's like Jesus saying to the woman caught in adultery, go and shame no more. Because the shame is gone. Even if you feel it, you know there's no basis for that shame. See, the difference between feeling shame and fe living in freedom is perspective. Let me continue verse 13. And this is very interesting. When Joshua was by Jericho, he lifted his eyes and looked, and behold, a man was standing before him with his drawn sword in his hand. And Joshua went to him and said to him, Are you for us or for our adversaries? And he said, No, but I am the commander of the Lord. Now I have come. And Joshua fell on his face to the earth and worshipped and said to him, What does my Lord say to his servant? And the commander of the Lord's army said to Joshua, Take off your sandals from your feet, for the place where you're standing is holy. And Joshua did so. <laughs> this is amazing. See, the last portion of the passage is fascinating on many levels. Because Joshua here encountered a very unlikely figure. Two things that we can say here. Number one is the identity of this figure. Who is this? Second is how he responded to Joshua. Are you for us or against us? He said no flatly no. So when God appeared to Abraham the first time uh, in Genesis chapter 18, he appeared to Abraham, uh, he, saw Abra he saw three men. Uh, God said three figures to visit Abraham and Sarah. It was during the time when Abraham was having doubts about if God would give him a son. See, Abraham waited for 25 years. I mean, 25 years is long. And so finally, three men appeared and visited him. And the Bible said that God appeared to him. And this is what it says in verse 8, chapter 18, verse 2. He lifted up his eyes, looked, and behold. I'm, I'm reading from Genesis chapter 18, verse 2. Again, he lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold. This was the author's way of preparing the readers to think that God was visiting Abraham. But what's interesting here is when you read Joshua chapter 5, verse 13, you read the same thing. When Joshua was by Jericho, he lifted up his eyes, looked, and behold. Are we reading the same thing? 
this leads us to think that the figure that Joshua met was just was no ordinary man. Now, another thing that he said, the, the figure that he, he met, he said, take off your sandals from your feet for the place where you're standing is holy. Now, this is not something new because when Moses encountered God for the first time in the burning bush, the voice from the burning bush said the same thing. Take off your sandals because the place where you're standing is the holy ground. Which leads us into thing, uh, two things here. That this figure that Joshua met was either God or representative of God. Well, the Bible did not really say, in fact, who this guy is. But what's more interesting is his response to Joshua. Because his response was, no. Joshua was asking, are you for us or against us? We, were ab we are about to attack a city, Jericho. Are you for us? Are you going to help us? Or are you for the enemy? Are you going to help our enemy? And this figure said, no. I am the commander of the Lord's army. What does it mean? What this means is that what the figure is saying is that my agenda, sorry, your agenda, their agenda is not my agenda. My agenda is the kingdom of God. I'm the commander of the Lord's army. See, Joshua's agenda was just br simply bringing the people to the promised land. That was not his agenda. His agenda goes beyond that. It's something more. It's about the kingdom of God. How many times have we prayed sincerely so that God would bless our plans? Many times. I'm not saying it's bad or it's not good to plan. It, it's, it's in fact good to make plans. There's nothing wrong with making plans. Planning is good. What is not good is if our plans contradict God's plan or if our plan takes priority over God's plan. So sometimes instead of planning and praying for God's plan, we make our own and simply ask God to bless it. And what's worse is that in the guise of our happiness, we collaborate and we conspire with the pastor and ask them to bless our plans. Our plans, not God's plan. And as if Jesus picked up on this, and he gave us this principle in Matthew 6, 31 to 33. This is what Jesus said. Therefore, do not be anxious, saying, what shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. What you eat, what you drink, what you wear. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added unto you. What this means is that Christian life is characterized by God first, me second. Are you with me? Let me say it again. Christian life is characterized by God first, me second. See, the Gentiles, the unbelievers, worry about these things. What they eat, what they wear, what they drink. What Jesus is saying that is, is that this is second priority to you. There's something more that's important here, the kingdom of God. See, the Gentiles are characterized by seeking after material things, something that's temporal with lesser value. But Christian life, according to Jesus, should be characterized by prioritizing God's agenda over my career, over my love life, over my agenda, over my vacation plans, over my investments. That means God first, me second. Now, the difference between putting God first 
And me second is perspective. Because when we understand that God has rolled away our reproach, bought our freedom, erased our guilt, guaranteed our inheritance, there is nothing on earth that will stop us from putting God first, me second. That's perspective. Early in life, um, I already sensed God has called me to be in the ministry, but I resented it. I didn't want to be in the ministry. I don't want to be a pastor. Um, instead of going to the seminary, like Jonah, I went the other way. I pursued a very uninteresting career. I, I took political science. And when I was there, I understood and experienced the leftist agenda. In fact, I came to a point where instead of studying how God transforms people through the gospel, I found, found myself in a picket line shouting in, you know, hate and tirades to people who I thought were the enemies of the people. I thought this was the way to transform society, but I was wrong. But gently, God brought me back the fold. He brought me back to my knees. Uh, after a year of studying political science, my, my father lost his job. I had to stop studying. I was so devastated. Uh, all the world is crumbling. But then when the smoke cleared out, I realized what really God wants for me, that he wants to bless me, that he wants to not just to test my faith, but to refine it. So I joyfully followed God without really having plans on how will I bring myself to school. So uh, long story short, someone uh, sent me to school, uh, not a relative, a friend in the church who have been praying for me, uh, gave me scholarship. And then after that, uh, things happened. It was the school who uh, allowed me to finish, and I got this scholarship all the way until I finished college. What changed? Perspective. See, the difference between thriving and merely surviving is perspective. Here's what I want you to do. Every time you feel the shame of your past, remind yourself, shame does not define you. God defines you. Would you say amen to that? Second, every time you worry because of this pandemic or because there's a need, a physical need or anything, remind yourself to change your perspective. To look at this as an opportunity because vulnerability is an opportunity to refine our faith. When God puts you in a vulnerable situation, he is preparing you for something better. So that after this one, you are better, you are wiser, you have a better story. Perspective. The difference between thriving and merely surviving is having a change of perspective. Trusting God rather than trusting ourselves. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this morning, for reminding us once again that you are our God, that you are, are a big God. You are bigger than our dreams. You are bigger than our plans. You are bigger than our guilt and shame. Thank you for reminding us, Father, that our guilt has been dealt with on the cross, nailed on the cross. That shame has no legal basis on us. That you have erased all the shame and the claim of sin in our lives. 
So, Father, when we doubt you, I pray, Father, that you will bring us back to the fold. Change our perspective. Father, we repent as a church if we sometimes doubt your love or doubt your ability. Father, forgive us personally if we have experienced this in the past where we doubted you. Father, we claim your forgiveness. And we pray, Father, that as we continue to trust you, even this pandemic, you will help us to thrive, not just to survive. Because we know you're going to do something more, not just individually, but for this church. Our anniversary is around the corner. We are celebrating 28 years of being a church here. Father, I pray that you will give us more excitement, more inspiration. Inspiration that we are, we have significance because you can use us as bridge to other people who will come to know you more. Come to know you. And also their sins will be forgiven. Father, I pray for every individual here in the church right now as we worship. That you will just talk to us in your most personal way. Be with us, Father, in Jesus' name.